six weeks into our journey through Philippians, and, uh, and it's been a journey of learning how to live without flip-flops. And we've learned that we need, to, we need to kick off these symbols of flimsiness, and we need to put on the hiking boots of joy. And so the book of Philippians is all about quitting our flip-flopping, our up-and-down lifestyle by discovering joy in Jesus. And this book was written specifically to help us to truly believe that deep-seated joy, deep-rooted joy, is actually possible, regardless of our circumstances. And in fact, where it was written is one of these indicators, because it was written by a man who was left to rot in prison. He was awaiting what would be probably his death. And this man, Paul, could say in this letter, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And here's the fact of the matter, that if joy was possible for Paul, where he was, then he is convinced, and I am convinced, that joy is possible for you in your situation where you are. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And if you want to make notes, um, there's room in the bulletin, and we have the, our key verse for today to help you in your memorization. But here we go. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your, by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and that I still have. So, in order to understand these few verses, we need to understand a bit of the background about the city of, of Philippi. Because whether you believe it or not, your first responsibility when, when reading the Bible is not to discover what the Bible is saying to you. That's not your first responsibility. Your first responsibility is to understand what the Bible was saying to the people who first received it. And the reason is this, because if we don't figure out what God is saying to the original recipients, then we can make the Bible pretty much say anything that we want, depending on our mood, depending on our culture, depending on our upbringing, or depending on what we ate last night. Therefore, it's good to find out some information about Philippi. So, Philippi was an inland city, and it's right up there about 16 kilometers from the port of Neapolis. And since 42, 42 BC, so for about 120 years, up until the time of this writing, Philippi had been a colony of the Roman Empire. And it was situated on the Via Ignatia. This is the Via Ignatia, it's in red, but it's kind of hard to see, but along here, 
is the Via Ignatia. And this was a road that was built by the Romans that stretched, stretched from modern-day Istanbul, or Byzantium, over here, all the way over, over to Darachium in the west, which was a total of 1,120 kilometers. And then once you reached over to Darachium, you could then take a boat over the Adriatic Sea to the port of Brundisium in Italy, where you could then travel on a road called the Via Appia straight to Rome. So the Via Ignatia, where Philippi found itself, was one of the main arteries of the Roman Empire. And the Philippians were proud to be located on the Via Ignatia. And they were also proud to be citizens of Rome, living in the Roman colony of Philippi. And Luke even references it in Acts chapter 16, verse 12, as a leading city of the district of Macedonia. So Philippi was a city that was proud of its location on the Via Ignatia and status as a Roman colony. And maybe uh, a local example here would be, we have Hempville, that's right off to 416, and they've got a Walmart, and they've got a couple of Tim Hortons. We don't, okay? So uh, maybe that's something nowadays which can help us understand this pride of being on the Via Ignatia and their status. And it's into this context, as I've just explained to you, that these words are spoken, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as I've mentioned throughout the series, this book of Philippians is full of scripture worth memorizing. And I hope that some of you are memorizing some of these verses because they are absolutely powerful and worth learning. And here's a great phrase for us to memorize and to carry around with us throughout our day. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or as it's worded in the NIV, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And as I read some commentaries on this scripture, one of the things that I discovered over and over again is that this verse is under-translated. It's not translated enough. There's something missing in our English translation that the Greek-speaking Philippians would have immediately understood. You see, in English, we read this, let your manner of life, but in Greek, it's actually a verb based on a word that we translate as citizen. And so the fourth phrase should read, let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so these proud citizens of Rome who lived on the Via Ignatia that had been a Roman colony for 120 years would have immediately understood that Paul was making a point here. Because they realize that Paul is not referencing their Roman citizenship. He's not saying, let your manner of life as Roman citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's referring to another citizenship. He's saying that, he's, he, he's saying that your social or political standing here on earth is not important. What matters is that you are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, of God's kingdom. And the people who live in Philippi were citizens of Rome, even though they lived in another country. And as Christians, those of us here who are Christians, we are citizens of God's kingdom, but we live in another country. And I think that's important for us to really grab hold of, because 
nowadays, the language that we hear in the media and in the papers is, is that what our life's goal is all about is how do we identify ourselves? Who do we identify as? Who is my inmost, truest person that I say, regardless of how I look, this is how I identify? And so we demand the freedom to self-identify as anything we want. But Paul is saying here that how you identify yourself, the label that you put on yourself, or the label that the world puts on you, is not the most important thing about you. Paul is saying that if you are in Christ, your primary identification is as a citizen of a kingdom whose ruler is God. That's the most important thing about you. And this is groundbreaking. Because in this culture, as I said, and, and society that really pushes us to identify ourselves and sum ourselves up by a word or a phrase, I can respond by saying, I'm a citizen of another country, and God is my king. That's my primary identifier. So I wonder if you can see how freeing this is. It allows God to identify me. It allows God to say, yep, this guy, he's mine. It allows me to be, first and foremost, a member of God's commonwealth, a subject of God's kingdom, a citizen of God's land. And any secondary way that I choose to identify myself is built on the foundation of God's kingdom rule. And then the verse goes on to say, let your manner of life as citizens be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, how do I know if I'm living the best kind of life? Should I look inside? Should I look at those around me? Should I read Freud or Nietzsche or Marx? Should I listen to sociology podcasts? Should I reference the farmer's almanac? Should I look to the government or to my friends? How do I know if I'm living the best kind of life? Should I just hope for the best? Should I simply try my hardest? Should I read more self-help books or read the Oprah magazine? Should I ask my friends to type amen if they agree with my spiritual Facebook post? How do I know if I'm living the best kind of life? How do I know if I'm living a worthwhile life? How can you know that? Thankfully, Paul has not left us groping in the dark hoping that we're doing a decent job. Because God says there's one measurement alone by which we can evaluate, each of us is able to do this, there's one way that we can evaluate the worthiness of the way that we're living. And it's the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ is the fundamental, princi fundamental principle by which the kingdom of God works or operates. This is the constitution of the kingdom of God. It's its most, most basic rule and understanding. Therefore, the plumb line by which I measure my life is not society, it's not the latest trend that's wildfiring around Western culture. The measure by which I evaluate my life is the gospel of Christ. And here's why this is important. It's important for you to realize this. This makes life really simple. It doesn't make it easy, but it does make it simple. You see, there are so many people around this world who are trying to simplify life, 
whole subcultures are all about trying to simplify life. I was reading about a movement called Kinship, Kinfolk, which is all about people in their 20s and 30s, mostly, who are trying to live a high-quality, simple life, that, you know, to try to get rid of all the extra stuff. And I also recently watched a documentary about folks who are building tiny homes in order to try to get out of the rat race of accumulation. And I was reading also about people who try to carry everything they own on their backs and just travel. If you can't carry it, a bit like a snail, if you can't carry it, leave it. So everything they have is on their back and then they travel. But while we're trying to simplify our physical lives, our spiritual lives are so confused and so cluttered by so many voices who are demanding our attention. And so Paul, he carries on. He says, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, there we go. Whether I see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. And so the, so the easiest way to a life of simplicity is this, to live a life of integrity. And all integrity means is to be complete and undivided, your whole. And what is this thing that unifies us into this whole? What is the unifying principle? It's the gospel of Christ. You see, I would imagine that if the church at Philippi knew that Paul was coming, there would be plenty of people in the church who would clean up their act ready for his arrival. They want to put on a good show. They want to put their best foot forward. They mentioned their hair was combed and their teeth was cleaned. They would get all shiny and new looking, ready for Paul's arrival. They'd stop sinning. They'd pretend. So what do we do when we know that someone is coming over? We clean the house. Why is that? Because we want it to look good. And then the guest comes over, and they ooh and they are about how tidy it is. And then we want to make it seem to them that, well, it's always like this. But then you know that we can't really do that because that's a lie. And, you know, God's watching. And so we make up some self-deprecating comment like, oh, you should have seen it an hour ago. Or, you just caught me on a good day. And we hope that they just think we're just being modest. Oh, come on, I'm sure it's always like this. If only you knew. Well, Paul is saying that whether I come and visit or whether I don't, your life should be in order. But he's not talking about being perfect. He's talking about humbly allowing the gospel of Christ to be the measuring stick of your life. So, what you're watching on Netflix, hold it up against the cross. Could you watch it with Jesus on the couch next to you? No? Then stop watching it. What you're reading it, what you're reading, hold it up against the cross. Could you read it with Jesus looking over your shoulder? Yes? Then keep on reading it. What you're allowing to be written on the walls of your mind, hold it up against the cross. Is there alignment? No? Then get rid of it. Or as scripture says, chop that hand off, gouge that eye out. Someone who's lived in war-torn Syria or Yemen, they don't know what normal life is like. 
that they think that what they're experiencing, the fear and the uncertainty and the constant grief, is normal. But we also live in a war zone. It's the war of inconsistency. It's trying to present one face to the outside world and living another way at home. And it's always been a fight and a battle. But some of us have got so used to living in that war zone that it's normal. And so we don't fight anymore. We give up. We get by. And here's the thing. We live in the world of the incognito mode, where the internet itself is going out of its way to try to help you and I live a secret, inconsistent, hypocritical life. We can password, uh, password protect certain parts of our phone to keep things private. The dark web exists, and the dark web is just a reflection of our dark hearts. In the week, we live in a war zone, and then on Sunday, we take off our clothes of anger or lust or jealousy or covetousness. We put on our starched shirts and our fake grins. We wedge our Bibles under our armpits, and then we walk into church. But Paul is saying, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. So what if I did a spot check on you in the week? What if I just called you up and said, what do you love to? What if you did the same to me? What would you find? There's this guy called Brennan Manning, and he said this, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, then walk out of the door and deny him by their lifestyles. This, that is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And I know that there are times when I'm so ashamed of myself that I question my call to be a pastor. And then, on the other hand, there are times when I sin and it just doesn't seem to affect me. I see this tendency in my own life, maybe you do too. And so my only option is to hold up my life against the gospel of Christ and to ask honestly, where does it align, where does it not? And then to cut out those areas of life that don't resemble Christ. This is what taking up our cross means. This is what the cross-centered life looks like. This is a life that looks long and hard at the form of one who dies on a tree. It's the life that truly, truly grapples with the love that would drive the perfect God to pin up his son like a butterfly in a collection. It's the life that says in the words of John Brownlee, Thou didst give thyself for me, now I give myself to thee. Thou didst give myself for me. Now I give myself to thee. That's what I'm saying. This life, this cross-centered life, is a simple life. Measuring the manner of my life by the gospel of Christ. It's not easy, but it's simple. And so, as I said, the gospel of Christ empowers us to live a life of integrity. So what does this life of integrity look like? Paul does not leave us in the dark. He says it looks like this in verse 27. Um, Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of 
of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's what this life of integrity looks like. And so here Paul uses two images. The first is military and the second is athletic. First, Paul says, standing firm in one spirit. This is the picture of a squad of soldiers standing strongly all together and not giving any ground, not giving an inch of territory over to the, to the enemy. And when we are, are, are collectively focused on the gospel of Christ, when we allow it to be the measure of our life as a community and also as individuals, we share a common goal, a purpose, a cause. We are there in the trenches, holding together. And it is this, this common purpose that lets us say to each other, look, I know that you're struggling. I know that you agree that the gospel of Christ should be the way that you're measuring your life's worth. But I know right now that you're straying off course that you're using another plumb line, that your head and heart aren't where they're supposed to be. Let me help you. When we have a common cause, we can say that to each other. So think about it. Could you look at the person next to you and say, I know your life's priority, and guess what? It's the same as mine. Now, I don't mean how early you want to retire, or whether family or friends are more important. That's not the priorities I'm talking about. I mean the fundamental priority, the one thing by which your entire life is measured or assessed. Because if we're not able to say these things to each other, then we're not living in true fellowship or true community. Because we don't know how to concretely encourage each other or challenge each other or to kick each other at the backside. But when I can look at you and you can look at me, and we know, we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the gospel is preeminent, is everything, then we can take each other to task and say, come on, you have to pull your socks up. You have to get your life in order. You're slipping away from what's most important. You and I, we both know that. When we're, we're focused on the same thing, we can say these things to each other. And there's one thing I think which is really killing our faith as a community, as a, you know, in this culture. It's this idea of private faith. We're so afraid of offending each other that, we'd, that, that we're letting each other slowly die. We would rather let our neighbor slip away than offend them, God forbid, by asking if everything's okay. But no, we cannot let this happen. And I cannot do this on my own. I am your pastor, but I'm not responsible for your spiritual well-being or for helping you out of a slump. We all are. That's all of our responsibility. We need to be standing firm in one spirit. We need to be measuring our collective lives by a common tape measure, which is the gospel of Christ. Just ask anyone who works in construction. You, you, you are not able to build a house unless you agree on the unit of measurement. If you assume we're using inches, and I assume we're using centimeters, then the house is going to be at best useless, or at worst, worse, it's going to be a death trap. We need to agree on the unit of measurement, and then we need to use it, we need to implement it. So Paul goes on and says, with one mind, side by striving side by side for the, for the faith of the gospel. So when the gospel of Christ is the unit of measurement by which we measure life, we find ourselves straining for the same goal, working together 
as a team. We will succeed. 
How many Christians buy into this lie that you can be a follower of Christ and just watch a sermon on the TV? It's a lie, and there are so many people who buy into this. And so the church is weakened because we're siphoned off one by one like sick and, um, and weak wildebeest ready for the predator to eat up. But we have to resist this. Instead, we have to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Whether you overly like the person next to you in the scrum or not, it doesn't matter. You need them and they need you, otherwise that scrum will collapse. So don't let all the petty squabbles and the infighting of the church rob you of the joy of facing the enemy with your brothers and sisters locked in altogether, focused on the faith of the gospel. So if you are in Christ here today, if the gospel is the way that you measure your, your manner of life, then look around you, because these are your fellow soldiers. These are the ones who have your back. These are, the, these are your fellow scrummagers. These are the ones with whom you will generate not just 44,500 watts of power, but a spiritual power that will ruin spiritual strongholds, set prisoners free, bring glory to God, and bring you joy. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. First of all, realize this, that you will have opponents. You will have people who are threatened by your cross-centered life. You will have people that think that you have a screw loose. You will have people who, who see your life as measured and evaluated by the cross um, as challenging them because what they'd rather do is go with whatever is currently popular in the culture. They may find your life strange or confusing, even repellent. And Paul is saying that on your own, you will fall away. You will bow. You will succumb. But it's only as we stand as a scrum, it's only as we stand as a unit, it's only as we stand as a church, that we can resist the enemy and not be frightened in anything. And the same word here for frightened is used for a spooked horse. If you've ever seen a spooked horse, someone runs up and that horse just leaps up in the air and throws off their rider. This is that word that's used. And sometimes we can feel like that. Sometimes we can be spooked. So who are you surrounding yourself with to enable you to keep the faith? Because a personal faith, or sorry, a a secret or a private faith is a misnomer. Who are you arm in arm with? This is a clear sign, moving on, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from, from God. What does it mean when it says that the fact that you are strong and unfrightened is a sign of the destruction of your opponent. How are those two things linked? You being unfrightened is a sign of the destruction of your opponent. How is that linked? And if I'm honest, I'm not really sure. But here's what I think it might mean. As we as a church are united, and we're surging forward with that 44,500 watts of power, as we're surging forward, even the people who are against 
the church, even if people rubbish faith as being only for the weak-minded, there's something really compelling about the momentum of a movement and about the gravity of a group of single-minded people. And what it might mean is that in the quieter moments at home, these opponents of yours and mine are asking the question, what would drive a group of people who live in 2017 to be so single-minded about something that happened 2,000 years ago? Why are they so fearless in sharing Jesus? Why are they so unified and joyful? Where does the peace really come from? Because I know that my neighbor's going through a tough time, but whenever they come back from that prayer meeting they go to, or that house group that they're part of, they seem so content. I know that they're not crazy. They seem quite level-headed when I talk to them, and I know that they're on drugs. And it's not long until this line of thinking turns into, what if I'm wrong? What if they're right? And so here's the thing, is that as we're standing side by side, striving for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by our opponents, we are assured of our salvation. When, when we encourage each other, we are convinced of the rightness and the solidness of our faith. When we're repeatedly alone, then the doubts can, can overwhelm us. When we're surrounded by our fellow soldiers and our fellow athletes, we are really buoyed up. Not in a frenzied groupthink way, not like some kind of a cult, but in a quiet and assured way that speaks volumes to a lonely and threatened world. And that will bring suffering to us. But in the beautiful way of the gospel, even that suffering is redeemed. Nothing is wasted. It's not something to shy away from like a frightened horse. This suffering is something to recognize and something to acknowledge. Just as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecute the prophets who were before you. So, in our last sermon on this series, I said how death is redeemed. And so we no longer see it as the greatest enemy, but we now see it as the way that we're transported into God's presence. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ, and even when I die, it's gain. Well, here, Paul does the same treatment with death, as, but now he does it with suffering. Suffering is redeemed. Suffering is turned on its head. He moves it from the category to be avoided at all costs over to the category, this is a gift from God. Wrap your head around that. The suffering is no longer something to be avoided at all costs. Instead, now suffering is something that Paul says is a gift from God. He says, it has been granted. This is the language of a gift. Suffering is an indicator of God's grace. In your life. Wrap your head around that. When, when you face opponents, when you encounter those who revile you, who persecute you, who lie, it's a sign that you're on the right track. It's a sign that you're going the right way. And according to Paul here, what we believe is not the ultimate mark of a disciple. Okay, we say that. You know, since I believe that means I'm a disciple, but Paul says actually if you believe, that's kind of the, the starting block, but the real mark of a disciple is to suffer. 
It's incredible. And so even though suffering is not something that we, we should chase after, like some kind of a Christian suicide bomber, it is something that we should expect. And we should not only expect it, but we should thank God for it, because he's using this suffering in your life and in my life to craft us, to fine-tune us, and to make us more like him. There is growth that will happen, or that will never happen, in a Christian's life outside of suffering. There is a maturity that you will never reach as a Christian if you don't suffer. Just ask any persecuted follower of Christ in the world. They experience a closeness to Christ and a reality and an intimacy in their relationship with Jesus, which maybe we will never know. This is why Paul says that suffering is something which is granted. It's a gift. So, wrapping up, we've, we've learned here today that the one plumb line or the one level by which we should measure the manner of our life is the gospel of Christ. Jesus' death on the cross is the one thing that puts everything into perspective. This one act of supreme love and self-sacrifice. This is the event that we must hold our lives up to and ask the question, how does my life measure up? Not in the sense that we can earn God's favor, because salvation is a grace alone through faith alone. But if we are Christ's, then there must be a growing similarity in his example and our life. That gap should be narrowing day by day, week by week, year by year. Less of us and more of him. And so we learned that you know, the gospel of Christ empowers us to live a life of, of integrity. But we also learned that as we collectively worship the one who died for us on the cross, that we will be less uh, afflicted by our little squabbles and more united around the common purpose of making much of him. We will stand strong like a Roman squad or like a group of rugby players in a scrum. There will be a purpose and a synchronicity to our movement. There will be momentum. And it's this forward motion that starts to whisper words of doubt into those around us who oppose us. It tells them of our salvation and, and, and of their destruction. What if they're right? What if I'm wrong? It's these doubts which can be the first seeds of faith in someone's heart. So not only does the gospel of Christ empower us to live a life of integrity, it empowers us to live a life of, of grit. And it's only as a group, it's only as a church, all of us here together, that we can make sense of suffering, that we can thank God for the privilege of suffering for his sake, that we can see it as a gift that makes us share in Christ's experience as the original suffering servant. Suffering for Christ's name. It's a gift. So let me close with this quote once again from Brendan Manning. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips then walk out of the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world sim simply finds unbelievable. May that not be us. Instead, may we be people of integrity. May we be people of grit. People who are joy joyfully gritty. Citizens of God's kingdom, whose manner of life is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let me pray.